Go ahead and have a seat. Welcome to Village Church. If this is your first time here, my name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here at Village Church. And as always, I am thankful and grateful to see each and every one of you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Romans chapter 12. We're going to be starting in verse 1 this morning. But we've just finished the first week of the new year. We're heading into the second week of 2023. Maybe some of your resolutions are still going strong, but I'm sure many of them did not make it past a day or two. I hope you've been in Scripture. I hope maybe your Bible reading plan has survived at least one week. If not, there is grace abundant for you. Uh, for you know, the first few weeks of the new year, uh, we have a tradition here where we focus on the change that God wants to make in our lives through faith in the gospel. But God's change in our lives is far different than just the behavior modification that we uh, try to make in the new year. Rather, God's change is real because it begins on the inside. It begins with the root of faith and then it works its way out and transforms the very existence, the very essence of who you are in Jesus Christ. And of course, last week we talked about the reality that that begins with faith. I truly believe that God wants to grow your faith in the new year. God wants to build a deeper relationship with you. But this week, I want to focus on the change that God necessarily wants to make in your worship. That God wants to give His Word into your life in a way that deepens your worship of Him, that builds a life of worship to where it becomes a lifestyle. And I think really... It begins with faith in Jesus, that that faith is the foundation upon which the life of worship is really going to be built on in your life. But I want to focus on how that can occur, because most of you have no plan for deeper worship. Uh, you just think you're going to drift into it magically. Uh, one thing's for certain, you will not drift into deeper worship. It is only going to come through effort. It's only going to come through real life change. No one also can do this for you. No one can worship for you. I cannot make you worship more. Your spouse cannot give you deeper worship. Someone in your life, whether it is a mentor, whether it is a disciple maker, whether it is a pastor, whether it is some sort of spiritual guru, no one can give you deeper worship. That's something that's going to happen from your life. Something that's going to happen from the decisions that you are going to make. And I think in all of Scripture, Romans 12, 1 and 2 is probably the most popular text on the issue of worship. And I think that's for very good reason because it concisely describes the posture of worship that God is calling each and every one of us into in our lives. And it defines what the pursuit of of a life of worship is really all about. And so I want to go ahead and read, starting in Romans 12, verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, and he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And I want to pause right there and let you know briefly, he immediately changes the notion that many people have of the issue of worship. Most people think worship is about preference. Many people even think worship is about music. Some people think that worship is about personality type. Well, that's not how I worship. Well, this is how I worship. Note that verse 1 says worship isn't about you. Worship is about God. And the only way that you're going to live a deeper life of worship is primarily if you begin to consider what God wants 
more than what you want. He continues. He says, present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world. Many of you need to underline that. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Number one this morning, I want you to understand that faith presents to God what already belongs to Him. Faith presents to God what already belongs to Him. You know, it all belongs to God. Everything. There's nothing in this world that does not belong to God. The great theologian once said, there's no square inch in the universe that God does not look at and say, mine. Everything is God's. You are God's. Your bank account belongs to God. Your home, your car, your spouse, your children, whatever collectibles you have, they belong to God too. There's nothing in your life so inconsequential that it does not belong to God. How do I know that? Because Romans 12, 1 and 2 are built on that very premise. And Romans 1 through 11, it's basically a compilation of the entirety of biblical doctrine or biblical teachings. Romans 1 lays out the problem that sin has caused in our lives is that we have exchanged the worship of God for the worship of creation. We look for meaning in the world rather than finding meaning in who God is and how He has designed us. We look for satisfaction in created things. We look for satisfaction in money, power, sex, fame, and on and on and on. Instead of finding satisfaction in giving our lives over day by day to the worship that is finding satisfaction in who God is for us. Then, of course, the book of Romans spells out God's mission of redemption that culminates in the gospel of Jesus Christ that leads to life in Jesus that ultimately brings the purposes of God into view in our lives as we are restored in creation as we follow Jesus more and more. And so then it comes to this dramatic climactic conclusion in Romans 11:36. Here's what it says. It says in Romans uh, excuse me I'm going to go back to verse 33 rather. It says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable are His ways. For who has known the mind of God? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. And so the Apostle Paul looks at everything that he has said. He looks at the problem of sin. He looks at the reconciliation that we have in the gospel. He looks at the outworking of the gospel through the sanctification of all the saints, of all those who trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ, even to the point where the Apostle Paul writes ultimately from Romans 9 through verse 11. He says, God has absolute control over the future because He is our sovereign ruler. And then his conclusion, starting in verse 33, is a praise song. He says, how amazing is God? He says, who can give God advice? Look at what He has done. Who can give the Lord counsel? Who among you has God looked at and said, I need some of your ideas? None. And then He says, 
in verse 36, something very important for understanding who God is. From Him, through Him, and to Him are what? All things. All things. Everything is His. Everything is under His control. Everything is under His rule. Everything is under His sovereignty. It's all from God, and therefore it must all go to God. It's all His. When you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the level at which you worship is the level at which you understand everything I have belongs to Him. Therefore, I need to figure out how I can turn everything in my life towards Him. So when Paul wants to transition in Romans 12.1 to begin to talk about practical living, that's what Romans 12 through Romans 15 is all about, he starts with a statement of the mercies of God because that is what he has spelled out for 11 chapters. He has spelled out the gospel. So Paul is saying that our response to the gospel, our response to the work of redemption in Jesus Christ, our response to the faith that we claim to have in Jesus is to give all of ourselves over to all of what God has commanded us to be and all that He has commanded us to do, that we must become a people obsessed with what God wants instead of what I want. Many of you will find that the secret to Christian living the secret to Christian growth is to stop caring so much about what you want and to start caring more about what God wants. Now, this should come naturally. You think the Holy Spirit has regenerated me. The Holy Spirit has done this amazing work of redemption in my life. The Holy Spirit has brought me to faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, I'm just naturally going to live like that. No, you aren't. You know how I know that. It's a crazy thing I learned in elementary school. It's called grammar and terms. Here's the key. Look at Romans 12, 1 again. The apostle starts by saying, I appeal to you, therefore. In other words, in light of everything that I've just said, I beg you. That's what it means to make an appeal. It means to ask. It means to draw someone to do something. It means to tell someone, this is what you need to do. So, if you think that the Christian life is just going to happen naturally, that you're just going to drift into worship of God, it's in denial of what the Apostle is telling us right here. Because the Apostle is telling us, this is not just going to happen. You need to move the pieces on the chessboard of your life to ensure that it happens. It's going to require effort. If we didn't need to do something about it, Paul wouldn't have to appeal to us to do it. It would just naturally happen in our lives. But since he's already told us it's all God's, therefore it's all got to go back to God, then we live to give it back by making choices to live lives of worship. That's what it means to be a living sacrifice. The life of faith glories in giving more and more of myself to God every single day. Because that appeal 
jumps off of verse 36. If you're a Christian, then you realize that in Jesus, God has redeemed us to restore us to that design that was lost in Romans chapter 1. Our lives then are defined by the redemption to God's vision for us. And instead of looking for what I can get out of God, instead of looking for what I can get out of the world around me, instead of looking at the world around me and saying, this is what I'm going to find satisfaction in, that's what I'm going to find satisfaction in, you are what I'm going to find satisfaction in in some way, you look to the world around you and say, how can I engineer my life to where I'm giving it all to God? God has made it all for me to use to show how awesome He is. His glory. That's what life is all about. And as you grow in your faith, you will continually see how much more you need to give of yourself to God. Follower of Jesus Christ never looks at what He's doing for the Lord and says, isn't that enough? Haven't I done enough? I mean, I've had people look to me in my life and say, haven't you done enough? Isn't it time to take a break? I'll take a break from the Lord when He takes a break from His glory. And you know when that is? Never. Problem is, some of you went on a break about 10 years ago and you don't know how to get out of the break room. That's what sin does. Deceives you. It lulls you to sleep in your life. And you begin to be deceived into asking the question, what about me? What about my needs? What about my dreams? What about my wants? God isn't really that interested in them. Because He isn't interested in my glory. He isn't interested in your glory. You know what my glory gets? Hell. You know what your glory gets? Condemnation. What may begin as a drudgery. Because I know some people look at the Christian life and say, it doesn't look half as fun. doesn't look half as good. doesn't look half as pleasurable. It's foolishness because you're deceived and you're lying to yourself, but you don't think you're lying to yourself. You think you've got it all figured out. If I could just get a little bit more of this world, I could get a little bit more pleasure. Watch the trajectory of those people that live by that. They end up condemning themselves. They end up miserable. They end up destitute. And ultimately, we know that they end up under the wrath of God for eternity. But what may begin as looking like a drudgery becomes a joy-filled offering of yourself to God. Because the more and more you give yourself over to Him, the more and more you find purpose. The more and more you find design. The more and more you find what you are didn't even know you are capable of doing in your life. The more and more Ultimately, you find joy, etc., etc., etc. You will never find joy in selfishness. Some of you are trying. Some of you bring your problems to one of the pastors here, and I know what's going on, but you won't listen to it. Do you know how many of your problems would be solved just like this if you would just stop being so selfish? If you would stop being so self-centered? Most of your problems are bound up in the fact that you are the most important person in your life. You're not going to be able to bring joy into anybody else's life so long as you're obsessed with just your happiness and just your needs and just what you want and what you need out of life. Oh, I am so tired of marriage counseling where all that I hear is what you need out of the other person. Well, guess what? They're never going to give you what you need. Never. Just quit then. 
Because you want to know what? You were never designed by God to find your ultimate fulfillment in another human being. And so long as you treat that person like God, you say, oh, he's not a good God. He doesn't do what I need. Oh, she's not a good God. She doesn't do what I need. Exactly. But you think your misery is going to be fixed by them changing. Never going to happen. I've seen enough spouses and enough marriage problems to know they could change everything in their lives, make you the center of their universe, give you everything that you claim you want from them, and guess what? You're still going to be saying, well, one more thing I need. It's never going to be enough because you weren't designed that way. And I'm not saying people don't blow and ruin their marriages and do stupid things. Trust me, you guys are really stupid where marriage is concerned. And you guys do really stupid things. Every husband in here is going to blow it for reasons that have to do with him. And every wife in here is going to blow it for reasons that have to do with her. The key to marriage, though, is never take, 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 take. The key to marriage is wanting what God wants more than what anyone else wants because when God is constantly filling you in your life, you can constantly fill another person with your life. The key always starts with give. Give yourself to God because then He will give you something worth giving to somebody else. That's the key to life. That's the key to this whole thing. You believe the gospel more, and guess what happens? You believe the lies of the world less. You see that the emperor has no clothes. Smartens you up to the world around you. Number two, if you want more worship, you will seek more sacrifice. If you want more worship, you will seek more sacrifice. Worship requires effort. It does. It's not going to happen by accident. I think one of the biggest misconceptions in the Christian life is that word, effort. Because I say effort and some people will retort, well, by grace I am saved through faith. That not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. There's no effort, Steve. Good luck with all that. Good luck growing with that mentality. You know who tells me that the most? People that have the most sin in their lives. The people who are the most rebellious against God in their lives. The people who have actually experienced the least amount of grace in their lives are the people that don't like to put effort into anything. Here's the key. The gospel is opposed to earning. The gospel is not opposed to effort. The gospel life is actually filled with a tremendous amount of effort. Now, don't get me wrong. Grace, of course, is opposed to earning. Salvation is by faith alone, through grace alone. Jesus has done it all. I will never need to do anything for my own personal salvation. Friend, you add nothing to salvation. If you did, you'd ruin the whole thing. That salvation, though, guess what? It changes your life. Faith transforms you to a life of effort towards worship. Scriptures are filled with God calling people to live for Him. I mean, I feel like some of you have never read a command in Scripture. You realize God is very demanding. The Bible's filled with evidence of that. And Jesus didn't come to 
do away with the commands of God. It's like people read the book of Proverbs, and I need you to understand the book of Proverbs is filled with so much wisdom for life. You can have a way better life if you follow the wisdom of the book of Proverbs. But some of you live as though Jesus died to nullify the wisdom in the book of Proverbs. No, if you do stupid things, stupid things are going to happen to you. That's a rule of life. It's the way that it goes. The gospel, when you come to faith, is about the Holy Spirit coming into your life, changing everything, completely transforming you, and then for the rest of your days, your effort is focused on how do I bring God glory? How do I bring the God who sent His only Son to die for my sin? How can I change everything under His power to show how wonderful and worthy He is in my life? And that effort... In this passage, you know what it's called? Sacrifice. <clears throat> Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Friends, you are now a living sacrifice for the rest of your days. You are a living sacrifice to the things that hold you back from the life that God is calling you to so that you can live out God's design through obedience to His commands. 1 Peter 2.5 puts it this way. It offers an analogy of building a spiritual house by building, by making rather spiritual sacrifices. The apostle says, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It's something very similar to what Paul says here. But note, what the focus is, because some of you read living sacrifice and you're like, okay, I'll make this sacrifice, I'll make that sacrifice, because you want to pick and choose what you will sacrifice. Well, how do you know God's interested in what you're willing to sacrifice? The text doesn't say sacrifice is acceptable to me. Trust me, there's a lot of sacrifices I could make that I will never miss. I could sacrifice vegetables all day long. All right. I think the key in uh, Cain's sin in the book of Genesis, he's trying to give God what he doesn't want to eat. He's like, I don't like vegetables. You can have them, Lord. I know you didn't ask for it, but here you go. They're disgusting. All right. People tell me they like vegetables. You're crazy. Crazy, man. You ever eaten steak? <laughs> so good. Whew. Some vegetarians never coming back. Sorry about that. But God is the one that ordains what needs to be sacrificed. And what's amazing about these passages is that the Lord doesn't limit it. When Romans 12 says a living sacrifice, He means everything. All of who you are. In this passage, when it says God wants to build a spiritual house through you to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to Him, He's meaning the whole house. He's using an analogy so that you'll understand it's everything. Note, it labels the process, though, being built up. You are saved in a moment, but you spend the rest of your life being built up. You spend the rest of your life being restored by God, and it will require physical action. But it is a spiritual sacrifice. So what's, what's the delineation there? The Bible's filled with sacrifice. It's the only way, friends, quite frankly, that you can understand salvation through Jesus. So you look at the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, of course, it is animal sacrifice that sticks out the most. Sin brings death. And those sacrifices were scapegoat sacrifices, okay? 
their sacrifices in which your sin is transferred over in a symbolic way to that animal. And we know now that it pointed forward to Jesus. Then in Jesus, he offers the once for all sacrifice of his life. Jesus pays the total price for my salvation. Therefore, that kind of sacrifice, no longer necessary, no longer needed. Now, the sacrifice that God calls me to make is labeled a spiritual sacrifice through repentance of sin and through putting things out of my life that keep me from giving more of myself to the life of God. That is what God calls me to do. But you know what that's going to require? It's going to require thought. It's going to require action. It's going to require actually figuring out what is acceptable to God? What does he want from my life? How can I rearrange my life so that I am living all for him? No one, like I said, is going to drift towards that. It's not going to happen by accident. You will naturally drift towards apathy. You will naturally drift towards sinfulness. You drift towards the world. And that is why Paul is so clear in this passage that my spiritual worship takes place as I present my body as a living sacrifice. As I look to God and say, nothing is off base for you. It's all yours. It all belongs to you. Therefore, God, it's all in an open hand. Whatever you require is what I will give. Therefore, friend, if you love God, if you love God, rather, if you are called to his purpose, if you are following Jesus Christ, then a pattern of sacrifice will be present in your life. Look at Colossians 3.10. It describes this process as putting on a new self that is from God and being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. In other words, the goal of the Christian life is that the more and more you give of yourself to God, the more and more God's going to give of Himself to you. And the more and more He gives of Himself to you, the more and more like Him you're going to become. Theologian G.K. Beale notes that you become like what you worship. To which some of you need to look in the mirror and say, what am I becoming like in my life? Why am I so demanding of others and not demanding of myself? Why am I so obsessed with my needs, so careless about the needs of others? Why am I so angry? Why am I so lustful? Why am I so needy? Why am I nothing like Jesus Christ? See, friends, is when you begin to ask the hard questions that you will begin to find the real sacrifices that God wants you to make with your life. I will tell you, God is calling you to sacrifice in 2023. Because it's what He does. 66 books in the Scripture filled with sacrifice. So why would your life be any different? But here's the question. When was the last time you sacrificed something for the sake of the gospel? And I don't mean that rhetorically. I mean that literally. Think in your mind. 
When was the last time you can remember, I sacrificed this specific thing because the gospel is true. I sacrificed this specific thing so that I could grow in my faith. When was the last time you started something so that you could give more and more of your life to Jesus? When was the last time you made a sacrifice in your life for God? When was the last time you quit something? so that you could offer more attention to your worship of Jesus? And when was the last time you started something so that you could give more and more of your life to the worship of Jesus Christ? Friends, this is not some kind of mystical reality. This is a real stuff of life. This is practical living. For you to grow, you have to look at the real stuff of life. You have to look at your schedule. You have to look at every day. Christian sacrifice looks like being made new. But for that to happen, you need to leave behind something that is old. When was the last time you left behind something that was holding you back for the purposes of God? The more you do that, the more you will become like Jesus. And number three this morning, and I think this is where it gets difficult. Discerning the will of God puts you at odds with the world. How do I know that? Because of verse 2. <laughs> it's easy. Starts out with an imperative. Starts out with a command. Do not be conformed to this world. Doesn't get much more simple than that, does it? It does also doesn't get harder than that. The Christian life measures everything by God's standard. And it doesn't really care about any other standard. Doesn't care about my standard, doesn't care about your standard. It's one standard, standard of God. By faith, we trust that the cost of following Jesus is worth it because Jesus is always better. But you have to ask yourself, what is it worth to you? Because if you aren't willing to pay the price, then you won't grow in worship because you will practically, even if not verbally, believe that something else is worth more than worshiping Jesus. Now, friends, no one wants to admit that. But is your life proclaiming that is the question. And Romans 12, 2, of course, tells us a cost that is very real in our day. Do not be conformed to this world. Do you want to be a living sacrifice? Paul says, then it's going to cost you the world. It's going to cost you your reputation. It's going to cost you the esteem of unbelievers. It's going to cost you very real things in society and in culture. Now, some people act like cultural resistance to Christianity is something that's brand new. I think this text kind of kills that idea. Because this text is saying cultural resistance to Christianity, cultural resistance to the people of God is as old as the Bible is. When you decide to follow Jesus, I need you to understand this. The world will push back. When you decide to get serious about your faith, the world will ridicule you. When you decide to grow in your faith, the world will tempt you. When you decide to grow in worship, the world will try to force you into idolatry. Maybe even some of those that claim in a lying way to be followers of Jesus will do that to you as well. And so you have to discern what is the will of God. It's the point of verse 2. 
And so you have to grow to a place where you can figure out what is the will of God. And then you chase that and you don't care about anything else. The will of God will put you, though, in what's called enmity with the world around you. That simply means in a very simple way, it's going to make you enemies. Because you have different goals, you have different standards, you're seeking different things. You're saying Jesus Christ is God, and they're busy in Romans 1 saying, no, we want the world to be God, and ultimately we want ourselves to be God. That's the moment that we find ourselves in. It's just a little more abundantly clear now than it ever has been in our current history. Expect it to happen, but here's the key. You have to prepare yourself for battle so that you're prepared when it does. Because some of you want verse 1, but you're ignoring verse 2. You're ignoring the reality of the situation. It's going to be two battles, I think. The first one is the battle with temptation. Now, 1 Corinthians 10 notes that God has always and will always give us a way of escape from temptation. You get away from it. You run from temptation. You don't sit beside it. You will be tempted to compromise your faith. You will be tempted by the world around you to compromise biblical standard. There are people in your life that matter a lot to you, and those people are going to try to woo you away from God, even for, at the sake of your own faith. And they will make you feel so bad. They will try to make you feel so guilty. They will say, but don't you love me? But don't you care about me? And they will use every tool in Satan's tool belt to try to get you to compromise on your faith. And here's the deal. It's a tale as old as time. Don't do it. Don't be conformed to this world. You do not sit with temptation. You get away from it. As God provides a way of escape, you take the way of escape every single time. You know, the scriptures never say resist temptation and then just sit there for a while. <laughs> You're going to lose. Scripture, God, Holy Spirit knows that you're not strong enough. That if you just dabble that foot in that temptation, before you know it, you're swimming laps. You're just in the sin, making excuses. Why? Because you've decided in that moment not to be a living sacrifice. That's why. Second battle is where we really are in this passage. It's the battle for worship. We now live in an era where many will try to force you to give to the world what God demands you only give to Him. We live in a world that has developed into a weird sex cult where we murder babies conceived and we must, according to the world, celebrate perversion and blasphemous versions of marriage. We must. And the world's not going to compromise. And so what's going to happen when you won't compromise? Well, the world's going to be pretty mad at you. The world's going to hate you. The world's going to call you a bigot. In the first century, I want you to understand history. When Paul is writing this passage to the Roman church, Rome was demanding Christians to offer in a worship ritual what's called a pinch of incense to Caesar. It was a pinch of worship to Caesar, and they wanted it to take place in Christian worship rituals. And the church said, no, we will not be conformed to this world. And I think some of them pointed right here to Romans 12, 2 and said, that's why. And you know what happened? Many of them were killed. 
Many of the Christians in the first century were slaughtered because they refused to say Caesar is equal to Jesus Christ. In 2023, I need you to understand, they demand that your children witness drag queen strip shows. They demand that you witness it too. Here's what you need to understand. When you get over the age of 18, that doesn't make drag queens okay. They're still perverts who want to groom your kids and excuse their perversion. And I've had to deal with this in this um, church because it's something that's brand new. You cannot go to drag queen brunches and still call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ. You don't sit with temptation. You escape temptation. You don't applaud groomers. You tell them that they need to repent of their sin. And we certainly cannot worship at the altar of transgenderism and gay marriage. Doesn't exist. Like I said, the world is devolving into a weird sex cult. It's the strangest thing I've ever seen in my life. But we must refuse, refuse, no matter what it costs us. May cost us our tax-exempt status. Whew, persecution. It's real persecution. It could happen. They can take it. I'll never perform a gay wedding. Ever. You could kill me. I won't do it. Because I fear God more than I fear man. Jesus Christ himself said, don't fear him who after killing the body can do nothing. I will tell you who to fear. Fear him who after he kills the body can damn your very soul. I fear God. I don't fear men that much. And some people think I'm not smart enough to fear men, and that's possible. <laughs> but the Lord made me this kind of crazy for a reason. And so I'm kamikaze for the gospel. I will never back down. I will never compromise. Do your worst. But here's the key. I'm afraid for some of you. Because I know what you've got riding on this. I know what the world has to offer you. I know what it's like to have a mortgage. I know what it's like to have children that need to be fed. I know what it is like to look at your 401, well, it's 403B for us, but 401K and see it dwindling right now. I know what that looks like. I know what that feels like. But here's the thing. It changes nothing except our strategy. Because this is the day where we have to say, what is it going to look like in my life and in my culture to be a living sacrifice? And here's where you start. Understand this thing. Christians should expect resistance from unbelievers. Expect it. You can no longer look at the world and say, well, they're going to be loving me because they've got moral neighbors. Because they've got neighbors that believe the golden rule from Jesus Christ. They've got neighbors that believe the Ten Commandments. They've got neighbors that are loving, that love God and love man. No, unbelievers are now going to resist you. You are no longer in 1950s Mayberry. You are now in 2023, and they will look at Christians who really believe what the Scriptures say, and somehow they will get the fact that we are somehow bigoted. Because I believe boys are boys and girls are girls. That is a bigoted statement in 2023, and I make it often, publicly, on podcasts. I'm going to keep making it because God hasn't changed His definition of man and woman, and He never will. Come back next week for more on that. 
We must not be conformed to this world. We must be transformed by the renewal of our minds so that we can know the will of God. James chapter 4 verse 7 notes that we must resist the devil in our submission to God. We must do it, but understand it's going to be hard and it's going to cost you something. Galatians 1, 3-4 notes that the very work of the gospel delivers us from the present evil age according to the will of God. None of this is new. It might be new to you, but it's not new to the church of Jesus Christ. Why do you think it says that Jesus Christ died to deliver you from this evil age? Because He knows that the forces of Satan are going to be against the church. He is strategizing to get you. Are you strategizing to not get God? That's the question you must ask yourself. The sacrifice that God calls us to will cost us our reputation with many people. And I understand this. Some of you place a high value on what others think about you. Many of you need to understand that many of those people are not followers of Jesus Christ and you want the approval of worldly people because you think it can give you a better life in this world. It's not because you want them to come to faith in Jesus. It's because you want your life to be easier and I get that, but here's the key. It still says, do not be conformed to this world. What is worship worth to you and what is the world worth to you? And the question is, is Jesus better? Is He? 1 John 2.15 tells us that the Christian cannot and will not love the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You can't fall in love with this world and still follow Jesus. As you raise your children, understand that there are now more people out in the open admitting that they want to groom your children away from the gospel and towards embracing perverse idolatry. You place a high value, many of you, on your children being normal in the eyes of this world. I will tell you, not in this world. You don't want your kids to be normal in this world. You do want your kids to stick out. You want them to stick out for a very important reason, that they're committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying make your kids so weird that it looks like they were homeschooled twice. Walking around in overalls with hay sticking out of their mouth. All right, that's not what we're after. We want them to be, re be weird for the right reasons, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, their commitment to the gospel. If you want Christian kids, you have to raise them as Christians. That's something that some generations missed out on, and some of it's why we're in the mess that we're in. If you want them to be Christians, raise them to be Christians. Raise them to understand discipleship. Raise them as though Jesus is God, because He is. And don't give them an alternative path. You're going to have to make a sacrifice for that to happen, though. I make no accusation about the way that you're raising your children, because I don't know. But I ask a question. Are you sure that your kids aren't being conformed to the image of this world? Are you sure? And are you sure you aren't raising them the way that you're raising them because you're conformed to this world? Are you sure? Christian kids must be taught Christian living. And I can tell you from experience, that takes a lot of time and effort. It takes a lot of work. You know what else it takes? A lot of sacrifice. A lot of it 
Ask me and my wife about it. We're living it. They must be taught to never conform to this world. A few application points. Our time is over. First, live like everything you have belongs to God. Because it does. Secondly, examine what you are putting your effort toward. What does the effort in your life look like? And then you might begin to understand why you're not growing deeper in your worship. Thirdly, renew your mind by filling it with the Word of God. It's not a secret. Renew your mind by filling it with the Word of God. That's the only way. Fourthly, do not conform to this world. I couldn't, like, make it prettier. It's just good in the text. Do not be conformed to this world. It's hard. It's difficult. It's not complicated. Then finally, number five, discern the changes God wants you to make. I think it's in that order in verse two on purpose. Because it's only when you decide, I will not be conformed to this world, that you can then discern what is the will of God.